0: The next four episodes are focusing on different aspects of mental health. You'll hear from experts, authors, doctors, and most importantly, real people who really wrestle with these topics. The conversations in this series will be a little bit longer than our standard timing. I personally really did not want to rush through the content. Uh, I'll give a full rundown of the four sections in the outro. Uh, you're going to need to check that out. So listen to the whole thing so I can give you the heads up of what's coming. It's heavy interesting, real, and awkward at times, you're going to love it. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and today's episode zooms in on social anxiety and how to be yourself in front of anyone. Mark Metri has experienced discrimination because of his race and wanting to disappear because of crippling social anxiety, but he fought back and is winning. Mark is now a TEDx speaker, host of a global top 100 podcast and author of a book titled Screw Being Shy, How to Manage Social Anxiety and Be Yourself in Front of Anyone. There's a lot to discover in this topic, so let's get into it. Here's part one of our mental health series with Mark Metri. You do talk a lot about anxiety and mental health, and I, at the risk of it seeming maybe a little silly, I do like to get some definitions out there so that we're talking about the same thing. So
1: from your perspective, how do you define anxiety? Yes, I and mean, this is very, very, very important. Um, so, so important. So for me, um, you know, there's different layers to it, there's different levels to it, but basically, um, anxiety, the best way i found to describe it is it's basically like, I think of it as sort of like an algorithm, like the same way that we talk about algorithms when it comes to like social media or technology. um, I think about that when it comes to our nervous system. And so what I mean is, you know, someone will think of something, somebody will feel a certain emotion, somebody will step into an environment, someone will see someone And all of a sudden, like, your nervous system runs this algorithm where it could look different for each person. But generally speaking, like, all of a sudden – your heartbeat starts to beat more, uh, maybe your eyes get dilated, maybe you start sweating profusely, maybe your thoughts start to race. um, And then next thing you know, you've basically like lost your free will. Like next thing you know, like this algorithm has basically hijacked your brain. And then now you don't do what you want to do. Don't act or don't say the things that you actually want to say. And so there's different layers to it. There's many different forms of anxiety. I kind of focus on social anxiety, but generally speaking, that's kind of the way that I would like lay it out, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And from, from your own experience, kind of the, in that working definition, um, I, I love uh, your story, what you've experienced. And, and actually, one thing f- from your book that I found really refreshing is you come straight out and say that you're not a doctor or a psychologist, but you're a guy who's been there, which builds credibility. So, um, talk about that a little bit. Where, where have you found anxiety come from? How did you identify this thing and how does it tie into your story? I know that's loaded, but I'd love to hear that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to address the first part, like that's actually why I do what I do. Like, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, you know, neuroscientist. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not any of these things, but I also think that like, that's part of the problem. Like, I also think like, The reason why so many of us grew up with just like a lack of information or education about mental health and anxiety is because like we've sort of been believed that like, oh, only doctors or only certain people can talk about this. And of course, like, you know, you shouldn't talk about things that you don't know, you know, you shouldn't mislead people or anything like that. But that's a huge part of like why I wrote my book. Because I would like look around and I tried to read other books on social anxiety, and there's definitely a couple good ones. But to be honest with you, most of them are just like very advanced. And I was reading them, and I was like, wait, if like the average twenty year old, they're or younger, or older, who's not a doctor but experiences this issue, if they're facing this and they're sort of inundated by this technical jargon that kind of just leaves them confused and not really able to apply like that right steps in their life um, and so for me like that's literally why I do what I do um, because I know that I'm not a doctor and I know I can just kind of speak uh, you know in a common sense way um, and so yeah for me it's funny because I actually had no idea that I had social anxiety like I literally had no idea I remember growing up and, you know, people around me saying like, oh, why are you so shy or why are you so quiet or, you know, you're an introvert. And then there's like the whole uh, – what is it called? There's like the whole like Myers-Briggs personality type of like INFJ and all these different things. And so that was my only level of awareness. But I honestly – I had no, anx- no, no idea, excuse me, what anxiety was. I had no idea what depression was. Um, or if I did – it was just sort of like a very like exaggerated sense of like, oh, depression means that like, you know, someone is like locked in their room and it's like dark and they're crying all day. Like I had no idea that you could be functionally depressed or functionally anxious. And so, you know, honestly, for me, the very first time where I actually started to realize that I had social anxiety was um, you know, like growing up, I didn't really do any drugs or alcohol like most people. Um, and so I remember being in my first year of college and going to like my first college party and and getting drunk. And, and I remember all of a sudden just being like, oh wait, I can just talk to people now. And I remember it was like that contrast that led me the next day being like, wait, like how the hell did I just sort of like pour down this chemical in my body That all of a sudden let me talk to other people for the first time in my life. I remember like going home and like Googling, you know, different things. And I basically started to realize like, oh, wait, this, like, this thing that's called social anxiety, this is like a real um, mental health, like a brain health issue. The same way that, you know, if you have heart disease, like it's an issue with your heart social anxiety or just anxiety in general, it's an issue with your brain. Um, And so that completely changed my life because like the moment that I realized that this sort of game is kind of like a biochemical uh, playing field. And and the reason why I have social anxiety, it's not because I suck. It's not because I'm a loser. It's not because um, you know there's something wrong with me as a person or with my personality. It's just like my brain has hijacked my mind for for a decade, and so that for me led me down this road. And and you know I'll even share with you like once I found that out. To be honest with you, it kind of made my life worse because what happened was. I started to be like, hey, I have this anxiety. What am I going to do about it, right? And I had obviously, I had like no guidance at the time. I had no idea what I was doing. And so what I started doing was like, hey, I just got to expose myself to this stuff. And so I remember, um, you know, I would like set these challenges for myself. And I would like go to my college cafeteria and try to like talk to one random person or I would try to go to the library or something like that. And, you know, to be honest with you, I completely failed. Like I literally, I remember it now, like yesterday where I would try to walk up to someone and then literally just like my brain, my nervous system would just like hold me back. Like even though I would put in like a hundred percent effort of like, you're going to talk to this person. This is what you're going to say. Uh, here's how it's going to happen. Every time I try to do that, just something within me just physically held me back. And when I experienced that, to be honest with you, it made me very hopeless because I was like, oh, shit, like I'm going to be stuck like this forever. Um, And then next thing I knew, you know, I was filled with so much pain and I just wanted to distract myself. And so I found myself drinking way more alcohol. Um, I ate way too much food. Next thing I knew, I like became obese. Uh, I became seriously depressed for probably the first time in my life. Uh, My lifelong social anxiety turned into social isolation. I stopped talking to my family, my friends. Uh, and then eventually I was actually like suicidal for about a period of uh, of a month. And when I experienced that, that really like woke me up. And I was like, Mark, you need to like change what you're doing. You need to change your approach. Because if you don't, you're going to be a statistic. And like all these dreams and all these hopes of who you actually want to be and what you want to do in the world, they're going to die with you. And so when that happened to me when I was 18 in like 2015 – it completely changed my life. Like that that was a line kind of in between the sand and and then just through after that period in the coming days, weeks, months and years, I just started to learn, I started to research, I started to like, you know, get help and really just try to figure out like what is this? How can I reverse it? How can I rewire my brain? And then ultimately that led me to like, you know, doing everything I do now, like start a business, start a top 100 podcast all this stuff and I wouldn't be able to do any of these things that I'm doing if I was still stuck with that debilitating social anxiety that like approximately in America 20 to 30 million people face every day and a lot of people have no idea and then on top of that it's reported that it takes about 10 or more years for the average person with social anxiety to actually seek help and 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 you know the last thing that I'll say here is that a lot of the times this problem, it's disguised as like being just shy, or it's disguised as just being an introvert. And the reality is like, that's such a dangerous misconception. Because uh, like, for example, Harvard University did a meta analysis study. And what they found was that social anxiety is not only one of the most common mental health issues in America, it's also the most correlated with substance abuse, social isolation and suicide. You know, and so you start to think about things, you start to think about how, you know, every year 800,000 people commit suicide, and a lot of the solutions that we have in our society from, you know, calling the suicide hotline, or seeing a doctor or a therapist, a lot of the times, like, it's hard enough for the average person to, like, speak up about their mental health, it's about, like, 10,000 times worse For someone who's experiencing mental health issues, and they have social anxiety, because it's literally a disease that prevents them from being social that prevents them from saying what they want and being who they want to be. And so once I kind of saw this happen in my life, saw the research, saw my own experience, talked to other people, I was like, Oh, my God, no one's talking about this. And so that kind of led me on my journey and, and my quest. Um, and so thank you for listening to my long answer about No, no, no. This oh, is, God. this is
0: why you're here, man. This is why you're here. I love it. And it ties in really, really well to this question that's been, that's kind of burning me up, but you touched on it and I, I would love to hear more. So the title of your book is Screw Being Shy, How to Manage Social Anxiety and Be Yourself in Front of Anyone. And so based on what you just were saying, the title of your book and your experience, I've got to ask like to jump to the heart of it, how do people manage social anxiety? Because it, if we're all leaning into this explanation that you just gave about this monster that people deal with and millions of people are wrestling with, whether they have identified it or not, once they identify it, what is it that you found for people and how do they manage social anxiety?
1: Yeah, definitely. This is a great question. So, um, I think one of the things that's important to talk about is like the causes of like, how does this happen in the first place? So so there's a lot of different factors. Nobody really knows 100%, but basically it's a combination of like your genetics, your brain structure, um, but more importantly, it has to do with your early life experiences. So we know that if you've experienced any kind of... um, discrimination, bullying, abuse, um, like social ostracization. This is a huge, huge aspect. And I know personally for me, like one of the big things is being an immigrant is I actually lived in a small town where um, physically nobody looked like me. And also I ended up facing so much discrimination and, and really just for no reason because I looked different. Um, and so that's like one of the biggest causes for it. And it usually starts around, uh, like the seeds get planted for it, usually around ages 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, So that's one thing to keep in mind. And then when it comes to how do you deal with this issue, um, so I think a really great analogy that can kind of help people think about this is, I sort of think about this when it comes to like your mind um, or sort of like your software, Versus your hardware, right? So like, for example, your iPhone, right? So your iPhone has like the hardware of like the camera, the the motherboard, like the computer chips, um, you know, like the the physical stuff, right? And I sort of equate that to your physical organs of your body, right? So I'm talking about your brain, your nerves, um, you know, how your blood works, like the physical properties, right? And then when it comes to the software, this is kind of like, you know, it's, it's Apple's version of iOS, you know, iOS 15. And I kind of think of the software as sort of like your mind, your mindset and your thoughts. And personally, what I think is one of the biggest obstacles and why most people are never able to escape out of this cycle is because they're just trying to use their mind to escape out of social anxiety. And so sort of the analogy that I play for this is like, imagine you have like a super slow, like the original iPhone or like you have like the original like iPhone 3GS. And like even if you have the world's best software in the entire world, like you have iOS 18 or whatever they're on now, and you're trying to install like the greatest software on an outdated piece of hardware, no matter how much you try, it's still going to be slow. It's still going to be clunky. It's not really going to install properly. And so for me, what I've learned is that most of us, like we listen to podcasts, we read articles like, oh, what are tips to not be shy or what are tips to deal with social anxiety? And a lot of them just deal with the surface layer. They tell you like, you know, oh, don't care about what people think about or like, you know, try to act confident. Um, you know, we're like, here are networking tips. And the thing is, is that if you don't address the hardware, then you're going to be stuck in that cycle. And so the best way that I've kind of, you know, described about this is that it's uh, for most people, it's not really an issue with your mind. It's actually probably an issue like with your brain. And and like odds are, you know, most of us were not taught about brain health Um, And then if you're alive, like in 2021, most of the just like natural modern environment that we live in, unfortunately, like heavily damages our brains in ways that we may not even expect. And so that's the best tip that I could sort of like begin to talk about. This is like, it's not your mind. It's not you trying to like force yourself to like talk in a certain way. That's just that's just at the surface level. Like that's not going to give you long-term results. And so what I look at is you have to look at your brain. Like you have to look at your neurotransmitters. You have to make sure that your brain isn't inflamed because if it is and there is an issue with your brain, your brain disease is going to hijack your mind automatically. And a lot of us have only been taught to sort of like, oh, how can I think more positively? Or like, how can I just brute force my way and just force myself to do this? You can do that for like 10 years. But eventually what happens is you get burned out. And then eventually your brain literally forces you to be unhealthy, or your brain forces you to be antisocial, or it forces you to have substance abuse or even suicidal issues. And so for me, I look at the brain. And so When it comes to your brain, what can you do about it, right? Um, And it's definitely a a complicated topic, but one of the things that I really think is really important is a lot of the times like in this mental health conversation uh, and when it comes to like how your brain is wired, uh, a key neurotransmitter that often comes up in the conversation is called serotonin. And basically like a neurotransmitter in your brain is like your brain has all kinds of different neurotransmitters. And this just basically helps your brain function. And so for example, like serotonin, this is literally what controls your mood. It controls your digestion. And then it also controls how you are perceived socially. And this is actually because like our brain for thousands of years uh, has actually specialized, a part of our brain has specialized in actually trying to detect how other people view us and where we actually rank in the social hierarchy. And so this is why people who like experience poverty, people who experience discrimination, this is why a lot of times social anxiety can come right in. And what happens is if this neurotransmitter is inflamed, if it's damaged, and you're sort of operating for 10 years or more with social anxiety, it actually like destroys your brain you know like you know people talk about like you know hey if you don't sleep well or if you drink too much alcohol that'll that's not good for your brain well actually facing anxiety is actually really bad for your brain it's it's very very bad and so um you know in 2017 the journal of neuroscience came out with this study and they basically found there are four main ways to actually increase and repair serotonin in your brain without drugs um and they are as follows they found that the number one the biggest impact was your diet which is your food and that's because um these neurotransmitters in our brain uh they're actually made from a cellular structure called amino acids and a lot of the times we like the food that we eat is made of amino acids and so our body cannot actually produce it so we have to get it from our diet um and then like a quick fact for example Uh, the Department of Justice uh, actually did a study with uh, military veterans who had committed suicide. And what they found was that, and they scanned their brains, and basically what they found is that in the veterans who were actually deficient in a specific amino acid called omega-3 fatty acids, it actually showed that you have, I think it was around a 65 to a 75% increase of committing suicide. And so that's like a very clear example of like, Um, how our diet can impact. And then the other factors in that study that laid out how to increase serotonin. So number one was your diet. Number two was uh, sunlight exposure uh, because it's needed to synthesize vitamin D. Um, And I actually, on my podcast, I actually got to speak to this doctor. His name is Dr. Daniel Amen. He's like one of the world's top mental health doctors. He's actually uh, like Justin Bieber's and like Miley Cyrus and like a lot of other famous people's doctor. And he actually told me that the number one commonality that he sees in every single mental health issue is actually a deficiency in vitamin D, because it's a it's a primary precursor for your body's ability to generate the serotonin neurotransmitter correctly. Uh, number three was exercise, and then number four was basically like. Uh, a combination of like therapy, uh, mindfulness, meditation, um, and then also being in like healthy relationships where you feel safe and you can feel like you can be like yourself. A lot of people report this with like maybe a childhood best friend or two. And so that's how I would sort of begin this conversation of like people to look at those four things, because that'll probably give you the biggest bang for your buck in the long term when it comes to like your brain health and your wiring, if that makes sense.
0: It is does make sense and I love this stuff. <laughs> There's one piece that um, I heard you touch on and I'd like to pause there and have you talk about it in a minute. and it's it's around some things that you've experienced. Uh, you mentioned a couple times about uh, having immigrant parents being an immigrant yourself, the experience of childhood, how that forms uh, some of this social anxiety and impacts it, you know, 9, 10, 12, 13 years old. Um, I know from your book, you talk about that. So I'd like to hear your perspective on um, those experiences. And also this, this term that gets tossed around sometimes of forgiveness. So what and I have no expectations of answers here. I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. So what role does forgiveness play in mental health? Or does it play any role in mental health? Or has it playing played in your journey? And, uh, and talk a little bit about your upbringing and and things that you experienced as a kid.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could talk about my upbringing first. Um, I think this is a great question, by the way. Um, So yeah, I mean, I remember growing up and like the first part of my life, kind of when I was a kid, uh, you know, my parents and I, we lived like in the inner city. Uh, We lived like in the projects. (laughs) And so, you know, there was all kinds of poverty similar to us. Um, There was all kinds of diversity, all different kinds of people. And uh, I moved around a lot as well. That was a huge, uh, you know, issue as well. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, for me, like a big thing that I experienced is like my parents and I, by the time I was around like eight, nine, we kind of moved out of the inner city and we moved into a small town. And then also at this time, like in America, this was post 9-11. And so if you were like Middle Eastern or Arab or anything like that, you, they, there was a tremendous amount of discrimination and racism towards those people at that time. Um, and so, yeah, man, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like I literally have memories of, of like just being a kid and, and like my parents driving and then like some person like next to us on like a motorcycle or in a car would say like, go back to your country or like, get out of here, you don't belong or call us like, a uh, you know, the sand N-word. Um, and I remember all kinds of things in school. And so, yeah, and and it's kind of funny because like, At that time, when I was growing up, and even when I was 18, I had like no idea that like facing racism or discrimination could impact you in the long term, um, or even things like bullying. And a lot of the times I think especially like as men, we're sort of taught to like, oh, that happened in the past, like who cares, everyone has problems. And like, yeah, obviously, it's not like you should be talking about it every day. But the reality is, is that if you study, you know, childhood development, uh, you know, from ages zero to 14, Like that basically creates the foundation of your psychology. And it's funny because, like, I remember when I was 18, I had no idea. Like, I literally had no idea. And it really wasn't until um, I started to like kind of realize these things and do the research. And so, yeah, the impact of it is huge. And like, Almost all of my clients that I work with have some element of that, of like being discriminated or or facing um, like racism or facing some sort of like perceived judgment by other people in your society. It it like really messes you up. Um, So, when it comes to your other question about forgiveness, so I know that, I know that, you know, one thing that I can talk about that I learned that really kind of blew my mind. I don't know if you've heard of it. But basically, like um, I think this is—I don't know if you ever heard of uh, like Dave Asprey and Vishen Lakhiani of Mind Valley and of Bulletproof. Um, But basically, they talk about this, and like they did this study, and basically, like they were able to scan their brains, and they were also able to like scan the brain of of like a Buddhist monk who had been meditating, doing meditation every day for forty years, and basically, what they found was that. They took like normal people um, who weren't meditating for 40 years and they basically like hooked, the, hooked their brains up uh, to like a brain scanning machine. And basically like what they found is like they led them through this exercise of forgiveness of like step one, step two, step three, step four um, of like how to forgive yourself, how to forgive other people and what they found was that their brain waves their literal like state of mind like that's been measured empirically was actually when they entered in that state of forgiveness was actually identical to the same brain scan of the monk who had been meditating for 40 years and like if you don't know if you meditate in general, especially for 40 years, that completely rewires your brain. It completely changes the way that you perceive stress. It completely changes the way that you even view your identity and how you even just interface with with reality and life itself. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, I had no idea. And so, like, I know for me, one of the big things in like I talk about it in my book, I think in chapter two or three, um, is just like the ability to like be truthful with yourself. Um, And and like what I talk about is like um, one of the things that I did was like I had to like go back to my past and like figure out different times where I feel like I either betrayed myself or I lied to somebody else. And like basically what I would do is I would do the same exercise and forgive myself. But then I would also like literally call people up or text them and literally be like, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I did this to you when I was younger. Hey, I'm sorry. I lied to you about this thing. Um, and so that really, really helped me kind of bring this full circle. Um, and then I know, I don't know, I don't know if I've made this quote. I say it a lot. I don't know if someone else said it, but, um, I think a really great, uh, kind of saying that I've developed or that I've heard over the years is like, if you can't forgive yourself, then you can never accept yourself. And if you can never accept yourself, then you can never truly love yourself. And if you can never truly love yourself, then you can never actually work or develop yourself. And I think this is a huge, huge, huge aspect because I think a lot of people when it comes to changing themselves or or even doing personal development or working on themselves, a lot of the times it it comes from like a – a, a sort of place of of, uh, of like anger or it kind of comes from a place of like desperation or it comes from a place of like, you know, screw them. I'm going to prove them wrong. And like, yeah, that can get you going for like a year or two. You know, that's kind of like the dark side of motivation. It's definitely a thing. But then also like you're going to like it's going to hurt you in the long term, you know. And so I think kind of approaching it from that holistic view and just like working on yourself because you actually love life and you love yourself because you're able to accept yourself because you're able to forgive yourself and like it, like this is literally such an important aspect because um you know like you see this all the time like in people who are super successful, uh, have all the kinds of achievements in the world, but they still kind of face some sort of imposter syndrome or they sort of fi- or they think like they're not good enough or they think they're never going to be good enough. And then eventually they either get lost in like alcohol or drugs or they kill themselves. And like it's so common these days and it's, it's really upsetting. And so that's the way that I kind of view it is like forgiveness is like this essential stepping stone. To like truly be able to like live a life where you're constantly working on yourself, not from a place of like hatred or like you're not enough, but from a place of just like continued and sustainable progress for all the right things that matter. You just hit on something
0: that I, I, I want to know and and you can expound on a little bit. You interview what would many people would consider extremely successful people on your podcast, like billionaires, entrepreneurs, all these kind of people, inventors. Um, what themes have you seen develop as you've gotten to know these super successful and ultra rich folks?
1: When I was first starting my journey, I, I think I, I had like this unconscious belief of like, oh, Mark, like once you once you like meditate enough or like once you eat healthy enough – or like once you forgive yourself enough, you're going to reach this spot where like all of a sudden all your problems and all your stresses go away and you can just do anything effortlessly. And there's definitely some truth to that. Like your life can definitely greatly improve for sure. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is like whether you have, you know, $5 billion or you have 55 million followers on social media, like literally everybody faces some degree of anxiety. Everybody faces some degree of stress. Everybody faces problems. You know, and so for me, I think it was really transformative to just like go around, you know, interview by interview, person by person, leader by leader, and just sort of get like a real life example of just what it means to be a human being, of like meet these extraordinary people who are doing crazy things, like changing the world, but yet they're still human and they still have problems. You know, and and, like, and, like you sort of, when you understand that, um, that can be a big shift for a lot of people because a lot of the times, like we look at successful people and we're like, "Oh, that's great," but like we could never, we could never do that, you know, because we have this problem, or we have social anxiety, or we have, or we come from this certain kind of a family, and there's something wrong about us. But when you realize, like, oh wait, all of these people are just like literally me living in a different life, and maybe they have different problems. Um, but they were just able to sort of wake up every day and like motivate themselves when they, when they don't feel motivated, they're able to like consistently sort of break like their human nature, uh, that just forces them to like be lazy or to be depressed. Uh, and so you really realize that like, oh, it's, it's like, you know, it depends on just how many shots you're taken and like you shouldn't excuse yourself of your own version of success just because you face certain problems and like when you realize that that everyone faces problems um I know at least for me that was like a huge unlock and it led me to do a lot of uh, amazing things in my life and, and not excuse myself from from greatness or from success just because I look a certain way or because I've had a certain history or because I have certain issues because really like underneath the surface Every single person in the entire world is like suffering from some issue, from some problem one way or another that they greatly struggle with, but they don't let that stop in their way, or at least most of the times, if that makes sense. And
0: it does. And here's, here's something that's definitely not fair to ask. So, we, but, you, but you get to talk to these people. So answer however you want, or we can bypass it. Is it lonely at the top? Because I hear that, you know, I, I hear people say that. I, and I have my own take on it, but but it's it's flawed. So I don't know. what do you think?
1: You know, honestly depends. Um, and I think for me, like too, like I think one of the things that I've learned is like having social anxiety is that um, like loneliness doesn't it doesn't come from having nobody around you. Like you can actually be by yourself and and not feel lonely. Loneliness comes from, the inability to communicate what's the most important to you to the people around you. Um, so I think that's like a huge aspect of it. Um, but I think honestly, so, like it, yeah. it depends. Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, so regardless of your uh, accolades, regardless of your bank account numbers, numbers, yeah. you know. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, I think generally speaking, I think that's true, but it doesn't have to be true. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, um, I know for me, like when I started my journey, like literally, man, <laughs> like literally from like 2016, 2017, 2018, like 2019, I literally did nothing but hustle. I literally did nothing but hustle, 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 hustle. And honestly, it was very lonely for sure. And like over the years, especially with quarantine and COVID, like I've really learned that that's not the best case scenario if you want like a like a lifelong happy life, but um, you know, it's pros and cons, you know, pros and cons. I think, I think each person just has to look at it. Um, and then also too, like, um, like even if you make it like from nothing and like you quote unquote accomplish like the American dream, but like you're by yourself and like, you don't have a team, you don't have like a family that loves you. Like, does that really mean anything? You know, obviously depends on the person. Um, so I definitely think both of them are, are very important. It's interesting. What do you think?
0: So I think that you hit on a a really important thing, and I I would be not at the top. But my perspective (laughs) is if if there are principles that transcend uh, experience and um, success in whatever term, whether it's uh, by title, by position, by um, social status, whatever, if there are principles that transcend that, then I would think that. It doesn't have to be. That's what I was – I was actually hoping you would say something like that, um, that you can have this dollar for dollar same amount of money as someone else who is completely lonely, but they're surrounded by people and they have all the money and they have every – you know all of the accolades. Or you could be surrounded by somebody <clears> – <throat> you could be, have someone that has a dollar for dollar same number of accolades, all that kind of thing, and they are bursting with joy. But that those, that principle is, is transcending beyond the, the material that there's, that you're known, that there's community, that there are aspects of this thing that, uh, you know, the cliche that money can't buy. So, um, Mm. yeah, so that's what I was hoping. I, I, and it's still, you know, roughly formulated. That's why I'm sputtering out sentence fragments, but I think that I don't know that it has to be, but the statement that got me that you said was identifying the most important things. So I've heard other people say it's really important to keep the most important things, the most important things, because along the way, um, those things, then <laughs> if you bypass the most important things for something that's not as as important, uh, long-term, it can be damaging. So there's my uh, non-quotable <laughs> statement about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, but, but dude, so you, you, I feel like I know you. I just almost called you dude. So dude, yes. uh, you've, kept it, you, you've kept it real, Mark. Uh, we love you for it. And I, um, here's another heavy-ish question um, that, that I think we could all benefit from. And, we, and I want to ask it because you already started answering it about lies we tell ourselves. So being honest with ourselves, I think is what you said earlier. So what lies... Are we telling ourselves, potentially, that keep us from being ourselves in front of anyone?
1: Yeah. And, you know, a good way to kind of think about this is uh, I heard this quote once and it said, uh, truth is the chiropractor of the mind. And so the same way that like we have like a skeletal system in our body, like our bones that like literally lift our body up and like, you know, prevent our organs from like crashing into each other. That's what the truth does in our mind. And so, um, a, you know, one of the great ways that I've sort of like analogized thinking about this is, um, I interviewed this, this person once, her name is uh, Lauren Zander. And she gave me this like great analogy and I can say it. And it's basically like, um, so imagine like you're a kid, right? And, and like you're, all of our relationships with the truth, they start off when we're kids and like, imagine just for like the sake of this example, like, let's say you're a kid and you have a rule in your house that your parents set. that's like, oh, no dessert before you eat dinner, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you're a kid and you really want to eat a cookie, right? Because you're a kid. And and like, let's say, you know, you know where the cookie, like, you know where your mom hides the cookies. And so you just like go and you steal a cookie, right? And you eat it before dinner time. And then, you, you know, your mom comes downstairs and she says, you know, hey, Mark, like, did you eat a cookie? And like when you're a kid, obviously it's like, you don't want your parents to be upset at you. You know, you want your parents to love you. And so most people in that case would lie and say, no, I didn't eat a cookie. And so basically like what happens when you do that, even like in that very small example in that scenario, Mm -hmm. basically what happens is like, you just created an alternate reality where you've just taken the real you, like what literally happened, like the truth, and you've taken that truthful, authentic version of you and you've put him or her in the back of your life. And what you do instead is you sort of project this fake version of you that can lie and that can sort of compromise on your values, no matter how small or how big it is. And so that's one example. Another example, for example, is like being in school as a kid and you know your teacher asks you like, hey... You know, when, you know, like, let's say the teacher asks the classroom, like, hey, guys, like, does anybody know when, you know, I don't know, when 9-11 happened, for example? Um, And so you think in your head, like, oh, yeah, that happened in 2001. But let's say you have social anxiety and then you sort of like try to convince yourself that you're not right as an excuse Mm. to not raise your hand and actually speak up. And then, you know, the teacher calls on someone else and they're like, 2001. And so that's another case of like you lying to yourself about your own abilities. And basically what happens is this happens so often and you basically get to a point like subconsciously in your mind where you can no longer even tell the difference between a truth and a lie. And like when you do that, it it, like warps your entire perception of life. And like, again, going back to the principle, the quote of like, Truth is the chiropractor of the mind. It makes sure everything is sort of structured and working. If you don't have that, your brain, your mind is going to malfunction. It's going to be dysfunctional. And then on top of that, um, like two weeks ago or about a week ago, I was actually listening to uh, this Stanford University professor. uh, I highly recommend looking into him if you haven't already, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He recently brought on like an addiction expert. And like what she was saying in that episode is that – Actually, like the same exact mechanisms, the same neurotransmitters in your brain that uh, keep impulse, uh, like, uh, like, like your impulse is out of control, uh, addictions. It's actually the same exact mechanism as you telling the truth. And so, what they've learned is that, like, if you're consistently lying to yourself, consciously or subconsciously lying to other people, lying to yourself. It actually like heavily increases your chance for like impulse control, addiction problems, substance abuse as well. And so, yeah, man, like it, again, it's it's hard, but like I know for me, like no matter what, I, I just can't lie to people. I, and of course, like I'm still human. I still mess up. I still make mistakes. But like I know that I just I'm never going to lie because it's going to come back and bite me some way somehow subconsciously. And even if it's like a white lie, like it's a lie that I know won't hurt anyone, I just can't do it. And, and of course, like some days I'm better at it than others, but I just know for my own sort of mental health, I just can't lie to people. Even even if that means upsetting them, even if that means like me being okay with not being the best version of myself. And I think that's a, a big struggle that a lot of us, um, you know, sort of, you know, can sort of tell. And, and and I think too, like I was listening to, and he's kind of a friend of mine. His name is uh, like David Sinclair. He's like huge in uh, like longevity. I had him on my podcast. Uh, he also lives up here in Boston. Um, you know, he actually said that like one of the top traits and like one of the top commonalities of like living a healthy, long life is actually telling the truth because he told me that ever since human beings invented language and we could speak, that also gave us the ability to also manipulate other people and lie to them to get them to do things. And so part of our brain has also adapted over thousands of years to try to learn who is lying to us and how can we predict their lies so that we don't get manipulated. And we also have that same thing within ourselves. And so when you lie to other people and when you lie to yourself, oh man, like, it leads you to a world of misery, you know? And and I know for me, like one of the things that I did just like, and I talk about this in my book, one of the things that I did to start to like combat this is like, I literally, you know, would like give myself 30 minutes. I would, you know, put my phone in a different room, no distractions. And I would literally write down like, Mark, what are you lying to yourself? And what have you lied about in the past? And like, what you'll realize is that if you try to do that, within maybe like three or you know two, three, four, five minutes, your mind will sort of give you like a logical answer that like makes you happy. But what you'll realize is like, if you actually go deep inside of your mind and you have no distractions, you're actually gonna uncover a lot of things that you didn't even think about that you weren't even aware of. And, and like that could be very, very challenging and very daunting for a lot of people. But like, I promise you doing that, like experiencing that, 30 minutes of pain, that 30 minutes of, you know, uh, being uncomfortable, that's going to greatly, greatly help you for the rest of your life in the long term. Um, And so how does that sound? What do you think about what I said?
0: (laughs) I think it opens up a category for people where they might want to be truthful, because it leads to building trust. Uh, Maybe it's a morality thing, um, but it opens up another category of maybe they don't care <laughs> about um, morality or, or right and wrong or any of that stuff. They don't have that, but they, they want to be healthy. I think what you just said opens up a whole other category of rationale for telling the truth. Even beyond the good stuff of building trust with people, it helps you live a healthy life, scientifically speaking. Uh, so what do I think about it? I love it. I was taking notes again. Um, and I I love it, man. And there's a ton of stuff for us to reference from your podcast and other names that you've dropped in, in this episode. So, um, man, Mark, so you are awesome. Thank you so much for making time to do this. I don't know a better way to close this thing out other than to just toss it back to you. So, what do you want to leave our listeners with and 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 how do they go about engaging with you from here?
1: Yeah, man. So first off, Steve, I just want to say like, you're a great host, man. Uh, oh, I, I nice. got to acknowledge you for that. This is a great, great podcast that I've been on so far. Um, Thank you. So the best way for people to reach out to me to learn more about like different things that I create and whatnot is if you go to my website, uh, M-A-R-K-M-E-T-R-Y, just my first and last name com. You'll see like links to my book, my podcast. Um, I have like a like an online course that like takes people step by step, week by week, on how to take action on these steps. Um, but the best way to reach out to me and contact me is if you have like a specific question. I, I answer it everybody, I try to for the most part. But the best way to do that is when you go to my website, you'll see there's like an email box, and if you put your email in there. Uh, you will be subscribed to my email newsletter. And basically every week I send out like two, three, four purely educational, informational resources, articles about social anxiety, introversion, anxiety, mental health. Uh, And then if you get one of those emails and you respond to it, it'll go directly to me and I respond back to every single one of those. And so that's the best way people can check it out. Just my website, M-A-R-K-M-E-T-R-Y.com. I'm sure you'll put the link in the description or something. Um, so yeah, that's the best way. And, and again, dude, you're a great host. I was, I'm, I'm actually really surprised by this, man. This is amazing.
0: Well, thank you so much. That, that, seriously, that's not lost on me. It's actually hard for me to say thanks because I want to sidestep it because uh, it feels weird to hear you <laughs> say it, but thank you. Thank Accept you for Accept it, man. That. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I I, uh, genuinely, genuinely, genuinely appreciate your time, but also the information and you being vulnerable enough to to lay out your experience for us. And uh, yeah, we'll have all of that detail in the show notes as well. So uh, if you're listening to this and and you are driving, don't crash. Just wait, (laughs) go to the show notes and click the link and go to Mark's website. But uh, Mark, again, thank you so much for this. And uh, I look forward to interacting with you again soon, man. All right, so takeaways and action items. First of all, the takeaways. If you can't forgive yourself, you can never accept yourself. And if you can't accept yourself, you'll never love yourself. And if you can't love yourself, you can't develop yourself. Second takeaway. Truth is the chiropractor of the mind. Action items. Well, first one is tied to that second takeaway stop lying to yourself. If you hate yourself, admit it. If you freak out in social settings, don't say this isn't happening right now. It is happening. And if you need help, get help. It's not weakness to get help. There's help available. The second action item, subscribe to Mark's newsletter and maybe drop him a line as he encouraged in the interview. Well, one of four in our series on mental health is in the books. Here's what's coming up. Next time, we're diving into trauma and its effects. This is a very heavy episode. The third in the series focuses on family dynamics and boundaries. And in the final conversation, we discover strategies for navigating life with ADHD with the author of Your Brain's Not Broken. If you found value in what you heard, I encourage you to give us a written review in whatever platform you're using right now. If you're not sure how to do that, go to our YouTube channel. I made a 90-second video that shows you step-by-step how to make that happen. We appreciate it, and it helps us reach more folks like you. And please, send this episode to someone who you want to encourage. Well, I can't wait to be with you again soon, but until then, from all of us at The Impact of Leadership,